it seems like the conversation on the labor left and definitely on the left is at a point where there's a lot of excitement, opportunity, everybody recognizes that, but there's not a clear agreement on how to seize the opportunity. And so the history of the 1930s is a, is a perfect example of a moment when little activist groups and existing institutions manage together to create an entirely new labor movement. Not in the Federation of Labor are the 30 million unskilled workers, the rank and file of labor in the nation's great mass production industries, oil, textiles, rubber, steel. Again and again, Minor Lewis has proposed their organization. The American Federation of Labor must undertake to so revise its policy that it can welcome the admission of these millions of workers into the industrial form of organization But other AF of L executives fear that the organization of mass workers might lead to radicalism. And the great heart of the American Federation of Labor is sound. And as long as it remains sound, communism will never gain a hold in America. Unable to convert craft unionists to his way of thinking... Minor Lewis at last resigned from the vice presidency of the Federation of Labor, marched up and down the U.S. spreading the gospel of industrial unionism to organize the half-million workers of the mighty steel industry, long an impenetrable stronghold of the open shop. He formed the Committee for Industrial Organization, backed by ten of the Federation of Labor's biggest unions. Into Pittsburgh, heart of steeldom, marched this tough two-fisted coal miner to launch an organization drive that would cost $75,000 a month. Gentlemen, this meeting has been called. Is it your definite financial... Okay, well, here's a passage from the conclusion of The Many and the Few, Henry Krause's story of the Flint sit-down strikes and the organization of the UAW. This is taking place after the conclusion of the first GM contract in a meeting hall during a celebration. Henry Krause, the editor of the UAW newspaper. Leaving, I noticed two young fellows near the door. They had been drinking, and one of them was trying to explain something to his buddy. His words came garbled, and as though realizing that he was not making himself understood, he shook his head violently several times. Finally, almost tearful, he exclaimed as from the very depths of his being, Emmett, you gotta believe me. It ain't me that's talking. It's the CIO in me. This little expression delighted me, despite the unworthy circumstances in which it was spoken for it seemed to give a flashing insight into the great depth of meaning that this magic entity, the CIO, had so swiftly attained for the workers. It was not yet the millennium, as this poor sodden fellow reminded one. It was chiefly significant, rather, for its tremendous implications of an immense collective unity and power based on simple loyalty to group interest. Let me tell you of a sailor, Harry Bridges is his name. 
Hey listeners, hey everybody, my name is Ben Maybe, and I'm an editor based in New York City and a member organizer with both the News Guild CWA and the Crown Heights Tenant Union. Uh, you're listening to our first episode, an inaugural episode, a preview episode for The Fragile Juggernaut, a limited run podcast on the history of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, and the world-shaking strikes and struggles amongst mass industry workers in the United States in the 1930s and 40s. The CIO sometimes catalyzed and created, and that sometimes it kind of channeled to its own ends. The FBI is worried, the bosses, they are scared. They can't depart six million men, they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the sea. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and build the CIO. But what was the CIO on a basic level? The answer is that during the Great Depression and World War II, millions and millions of American workers took part in new forms of labor struggle and union organizing. Most significantly, these efforts led to the unionization of the mass production industries which dominated the American economy. Uh, industries like auto, steel, rubber, and electrical products. Today we might think of this type of manufacturing worker as the paradigmatic union member. But until the 1930s, these big mass production industries had successfully resisted union organization. Many people thought they were inherently unorganizable. But in a short span of years, uh, workers in these industries organized themselves into the industrial unions of the CIO. This acronym actually had two meanings. Uh, initially, it stood for the Committee for Industrial Organization and later for the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, but the key word here in both cases is industrial. An industrial union is one which includes all the workers in an industry, regardless of their specific trade or skill. Industrial unionism was an old idea, but it had never succeeded in the U.S. at scale until the CIO. And that scale really was immense. Uh, to take just one telling example, over the course of the year 1946, almost 5 million workers were directly involved in a work stoppage at one point or another. And at one moment that year, 1.6 million workers were out at the same time. But this juggernaut, if it was mighty, was also fragile. By 1955, just two decades after the formation of the CIO, the industrial unions merged with the older, more conservative unions in the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, um, creating the organization still known today as the AFL-CIO. Uh, in the merger, the CIO lost a lot of its distinct identity and forward momentum, but uh, left a permanent impact on every aspect of American politics, society, and economy. The arrogant automatum of a brutal dictatorship. If they want a showdown, they may have it. Organized labor accepts the challenge of the omnipresent overlords of steel to fight for the prize of economic freedom and industrial democracy. We've assembled quite the organizing committee for this podcast. There's six hosts in total, uh, and we'll all take a second to introduce ourselves in a moment. But I'd be remiss if I didn't first shout out our partner, Haymarket Books, the premier radical independent publisher in the United States who has generously sponsored this project alongside listeners like you. Uh, we're honored and really thankful to kind of work with a voice in publishing that's clear-eyed about its political and vocational commitments. And that includes understanding and championing the kind of emancipatory political traditions forged by the working class of this country. Uh, this podcast, which will run about 20 episodes, is the first of many future audio products launched by the Haymarket team. We're thrilled to be the first Haymarket original. 
We're not typically going to have so many of us on each episode of the show, but we did think it was important early on to kind of establish each of our voices, our perspectives. So all of us are going to kind of pop in for this first episode, especially the intro portion to kind of get us started. Alex, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks, Ben. So that passage we opened with from the GM Flint sit-down strikes really encapsulates why I'm doing this project, why I think it's important. I'm Alex Press, and in my job as a labor reporter for Jacobin Magazine, you know, I covered this year's UAW strike in auto at the Big Three. And in that process, you know, one of the most exciting things that people probably know if you're listening to this show is that there was a new strategy pioneered in the strike. Sean Fain, the newly elected president, called it the stand-up strike, and he explicitly said this is this generation's answer to the 1936 Flint sit-down strikes that built this union. So history is always really present, even as I do the most amnesiac job in the world, which is reporting on a regular basis. It's important in this job for me to have some historical grounding, right? I mean, all the time with labor reporting, you hear this is unprecedented. I'm often greeted when interviewed as we've never seen this before. Organizing has never looked like this or workers have never dealt with this type of problem. And to me, I often think of the CIO era as one in which it was sort of an experimental laboratory of sorts, you know, for both good reasons and bad reasons, you know, as both constraints and freedom there. And so I just really want to go deep into some of this history so I can, you know, I often find myself pushing back and trying to bring a historical perspective. But there's no group of people that I'd rather do that with than this uh, font of encyclopedic historical knowledge represented in ROC, our organizing committee. So that's why I'm here. Thanks, Alex. Andrew, do you want to go next? Sure. Hi, my name is Andrew Elrod. I am a writer and historian, live in Los Angeles. I was delighted to have the opportunity to, to join this group. Earlier this year, in the spring and summer, I had been, um, I think with a lot of people, returning to uh, the history of the CIO to try and answer a question that's kind of looming around the present, particularly during the how many years now of strike summer and striketober? It seems like we've had at least two striketobers in a row. You know, as as popular consciousness returns to the question of labor organization, it's, it seemed appropriate to revisit the last uh, major upsurge in in organization during the Great Depression, when in the course of two and a half years, some two million workers suddenly became union members and won contracts that gave uh, institutional, lasting institutional existence to a new force in American life. Thanks, Andrew. Gabe? Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Gabe Wynan. I am a professor of labor history. I teach at University of Chicago and I have been involved in the labor movement, like I think everyone on this call in various ways as an organizer. And there's a few different things that bring me here, I guess. I mean, one echoing what others have said is the way that the experience of the CIO has this kind of like talismanic quality in the present, talking about the lessons and resources from history available to us as people who want to rebuild workers' power. And that talismanic quality is complicated, I think, because on the one hand, it's something we can kind of look back at to see what was possible and what could be possible again. On the other hand, you know, from the perspective of like academic labor history, for example, it often feels like the 1930s and 1940s were the kind of like culmination of everything that ever happened in the kind of history of social class and class struggle in this country. 
And then, you know, another century happened and the thing that was built in the 30s and 40s fell apart over time. And so now it feels like we kind of, you know, we're stuck in this kind of strange, like, denouement of this of this narrative that didn't actually end up the way that everyone thought it would. And I think that's connected to allowing too much mythology to kind of gather around the 1930s. So I'm interested in kind of trying to kind of get in the weeds of the of the period in a different way, get past, you know, the for myself, the kind of pat understandings that I ha- have often of particular unions and events and whatever in the form that I would kind of give them to undergraduates or something like that, and to try to really approach it in terms of sort of historical contradictions and strategic dilemmas that workers' organizations always face in some form. And that's connected to a kind of larger project that I'm interested in, and maybe others are here too, that kind of gave rise to this idea, actually, which is um, a general sort of dissatisfaction with the way that, let's say, theory and practice are related to each other in the kind of discourse of the American left, and a sense that actually to be better strategic, to be oriented strategically better to our historical moment should involve not less theorization in, in favor of kind of like just focusing on the concrete, but rather actually trying to kind of bring some of the more rigorous traditions of Marxism more directly to bear on kind of concrete situations in which we find ourselves. And that's a project that I don't, you know, I don't know how to do, certainly. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've been talking with friends and comrades, including some here, about trying to create some collective space for things like this, right? And I think this podcast is an example, but only one example of ways that we on the American left might be having those conversations in a deeper way. I think that there is appetite for that. And my hope is that this will be the first of many things like that. So just, you know, to kind of plug it, since it's sort of where this, partly where this came from, you know, with, like I said, with some friends and comrades, we've been talking about starting something, not quite a publication, more project, I guess, tentative name, parallelogram from a letter angle sent. I won't get into the details of that now. But anyway, it's a kind of space for projects like this. Now, that's not going to make guide the details of what we're doing here. What we're doing here is about the specific historical moment and the kind of questions that it, it raises. But I want to just sort of say it now so that people who are interested in that element of what we're doing here can hear this whole project as a kind of invitation. And I do hope that you will take it that way. And, you know, if you have ideas for things like this that you want to do and you want to be able to talk to people about how to engage in some kind of collective study in any form, you know, I hope that you'll share it with us. My great-grandfather was in the ILGWU. Um, He was a cutter in the garment industry in the Lower East Side. Or he lived in Lower East Side. He worked, you know, in the garment district. He'd immigrated from Russia around 1905. And, uh, you know, he was a socialist and, uh, you know, voted for Eugene Debs. And I think there's kind of distinct generational experience I feel like I've had and lots of us have had of wanting to recover some of our own connections to that now increasingly lost feeling kind of phase of the American left and to figure out what it means for us, not what it means, or I'll just say for me, what it means for me, not in terms of a kind of canonical history but in terms of how we might appropriate it in our own lives and our own struggles. Emma? Hi, um, I'm Emma Teitelman. I am a history professor teaching U.S. history in Canada, in Montreal at McGill. Like Gabe and others on this call, I also have experience in the labor movement, um, in the academic labor movement. And part of my motivation for joining this project was just feeling frustrated sometimes, um, seeing 
old unproductive ways of thinking being reproduced in, in organizing contexts, especially amongst academics. But m- more importantly, I think that as history professor, I have really wanted to think differently about how to teach this history, how to frame this history without falling back on tropes or um, reproducing old mythologies and rather to kind of think about how to make this history a more usable one, which is not to say like, let's reproduce what the CIO did, but rather, you know, studying how this group of radicals in the past made decisions in the moment under particular historical constraints and yet still managed to kind of break out from the dominant framework in which they were working, I think is a really important history and has potential to instill useful lessons and teach us how to develop ways of thinking strategically. So, you know, not to reenact history, but just to say that visiting this past has the potential to help us become more aware of our own uh, limited perspective. Um, Studying the past helps us become aware of the limits of our former outlook. And I'm Tim Barker. I'm another one of the historians uh, in the group. And uh, in graduate school, I played a small part in the emergence of a UAW local at Harvard, uh, HCSU local 5118. As far as I know, no one in my family was ever part of a CIO union, except possibly briefly during World War II. But I really, growing up, got a very clear sense from my grandparents of, you know, sort of what Andrew mentioned of, you know, what it meant to to be alive and to have your life shaped by this broader age of the CIO. And I, you know, felt like this was a, a history that somehow connected the, you know, the particularities of my own, you know, weird family with something that actually touched millions of people uh, once upon a time. And, uh, you know, the reasons I'm doing this podcast are, are a few. One is that, you know, as a teacher, I've, I've found that people, students, uh, the public, uh, people are really interested in this history and eager to learn about it. And they don't necessarily have a great place to turn. You know, one thing a lot of us talked about as we were organizing this is that there's not really one great book on the CIO. You know, there are a couple that we'll draw on. Um, our title, Fragile Duggernaut, actually comes from Robert Zeger's book about the CIO, which is, you know, a standard work, quite useful, um, but not, you know, it doesn't tell the whole story um, of what's really a, a very contested history. And what we've said today is, is sort of a basic introduction, but part of what we'll be unfolding, you know, through the show is just how how much people argue about basic questions, you know, about how to think about where the CIO came from. Was it from the bottom up? Was it from the top down? Were the compromises they made inevitable? Were they wise? Were they unwise? Were they disruptive? Could it have gone a different way? These are all things that people have argued uh, passionately about since the 1930s right down to to the present. And a couple points that interest me, particularly as as a historian um, that we'll be talking about in the series, one is the relationship uh, between you know domestic class politics and, and labor organizing, political economy, and um, militarization and warfare, right? Because as we'll see uh, in the show, um, military orders end up playing a big role in this to the CIO even before 1941. We see today, you know, there's some some similar issues in play. And another point is just this question of, of class coalitions, you know, and there, there are different ways of thinking about the 30s. Some people think of it as a kind of, you know, a happy story in which labor and capital found a compromise and a way to live together that was pretty good and we should just go back to it and try it again. You know, other people take the perspective that conflict never ceased, there are different views about how workers relate to their own unions, whether the unions themselves at times were um, standing in the way of, of workers' struggle. And so those, you know, those are questions that are, I think, couldn't be more relevant today and that we'll have a chance to reflect on, on, on most, if not all, of these episodes. 
Yeah, I also kind of have um, a kind of family history that, that that's in relationship to this. I mean, I come from a trade union family, more the kind of craft worker side and the industrial worker side, uh, which is what the primary focus of, of this podcast is. But the family history is kind of was a bridge to a lot of my own involvement in the labor movement, which has been as a rank and file member, as a kind of auxiliary supporter of organizing drives and strike campaigns, and also as a as a kind of staff organizer for service workers, for engineers and journalists, for higher ed workers. And I'm really kind of excited to dive into this history with the kind of team that we have, because um, I think that the era, as others have said, yields a lot of lessons, not necessarily always direct one-to-one lessons for us, but it's a kind of remains consciously or unconsciously, the high watermark of the labor movement in this country. Uh, Many listeners are going to be familiar with the landmark events of the era, the heroic Flint sit-down strikes of 1936 or 37. But I think even as we're kind of faintly aware of these massive upsurge in working-class organizing as a sort of backdrop to the period, we normally kind of think about the period through the lens of the New Deal or the Popular Front of the Depression or World War II. This is a history that's really rarely told with the mass worker in the driver's seat. I think even for those of us on the left or the labor movement, when we have even an instinctive kind of understanding of the working class as a protagonist in this era, we may not always have a confident grasp in a lot of the details, the kind of zigzags, the kind of textured way, understanding of how people organized. Despite these strikes and struggles being so dynamic, they're only often a kind of faintly heard hum, I think, in the background of geopolitics or policymaking or political campaigns that normally kind of frame and define the way we narrate this period. So I'm really excited for this podcast to kind of flip that on its head a bit and kind of tell the story from the vantage point of these workers, the tactics they invented, the organizations that they built, the new space for politics that they forced open. Um, These are innovations that are often poorly grasped by historians and many of us who receive this history from different vantage point. But, you know, Mike Davis, he's an activist and historian. He looms really large in this episode. He would remind us that they were often not even grasped self-consciously by the workers themselves, either in leadership or the rank and file. So uncovering and highlighting that implicit theory of working class organizing and activity in this really important like moment is something I'm excited to think about together with the crew that we have. To understand these organizing drives, not just something has trickled down from great men or it was an automatic reflex of a certain moment in capitalist development, but it was also something forged by the kind of organizational practice of, of everyday people. Now, this is my dilemma, Red. Uh, we got a meeting of the council next uh, uh, Tuesday night, the Knoxville Industrial Union Council. And uh, it's going to be a pretty important meeting. I sort of hate to miss it. We're going to have meetings uh John Rife is calling a meeting of the all of the CIO staffs, you know, CIO organizing committee folks, uh, from Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia. In other words, it's going to be a three-state staff meeting. And then that afternoon, that'll be in the morning of the 30th, and then that, that afternoon, we'll all break up and each uh, state will have its own separate staff meeting. I think we should probably signpost a little bit about the scope of the series to kind of say a few words about where we're going to be going with it over the course of the 20 or so episodes that we'll be recording. Does someone want to take a stab? Sure. Um, We're going to race across quite a lot of history from the antebellum period, roughly 1830s, 1840s, to the 1930s, where most of the action starts, and then slower and slower across the 1930s and 1940s. The show will end in 1955, after 20 or so episodes with the merger of the CIO back into the AFL. As we kind of advance in time, we also will um, be kind of pausing to look at certain kind of thematic or geographical things that 
will uh, reward some closer attention, you know, New York City, the West Coast, the South, the left-led unions, different topics like this um, that will kind of allow us to create a sort of a mosaic of the world of the CIO, even as we're kind of telling a narrative story. Cool. Thanks, Gabe. So what are we doing here in this first episode? Well, I think this first discussion is scene setting that has to take place about the history of the American labor movement, working class history in the United States, the particular circumstances of the frontier and the slave society of the South and the industrial development of, of a country that was very much unlike that of continental Europe or Great Britain uh, or these other national histories that the examples and even models of labor history often assume. And it's not just a question of sort of how the working class emerged. It's also, we're sort of trying to talk about why we think a history of the American working class should be a history of the CIO, right? And that might sound a little paradoxical. If we really think it's important about the CIO, why are we starting all the way at the beginning? Um, And I think the way that we've thought about that is that what's really special about the CIO is how it's distinct in American history, right? The level of success it achieves, the level of working class organization it brings into the political sphere, right, rather than just within the workshop, Um, and also its inclusiveness in terms of at least aspirationally organizing workers, uh, regardless of their level of skill, their gender, their racial or ethnic background, and all of these things. Uh, And so the question is sort of why wasn't there something like the CIO much earlier? in American history is sort of one thing to keep in mind throughout this history that might seem like it has very little to do with the 1930s and 1940s. You know, I think uh, Mike Davis's essay, which we cover in the first episode slash first two episodes, um, it covers a lot of ground, which is great. It's also kind of talking about the component parts of who will become the working class. So different groups of people are dispossessed and proletarianized through different historical processes. And this is really significant for possibilities of political organization. The process starts in the early 19th century, but it really accelerates with the Civil War and in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, And you see early kind of experimentation with something that looks like industrial unionism at the same time as you see the emergence of a more exclusive form of labor organization in craft unionism. And this is something that Davis covers in a single essay, which is extremely useful. There's an essay that we don't talk about in the episode that I love by Adam Shavorsky, uh, the Marxist political scientist, about what we're talking about when we talk about class formation. And Shavorsky has his famous line in the essay where he says, Struggles about class always precede struggles between classes. And what he means by that is that the actual mode of production and the forces of production never dictate the organizational form of of the working class. And there's always kind of work that has to get, organizational work that has to get done, which is itself confronting questions of boundaries, right? Questions of inclusion and exclusion, who's like us, who's not like us, which is a fundamentally political process. It can't be read off of economics. And that's what he means by struggles about class. And I think in some way, struggles about class are what a lot of this episode is about, right? As people are trying to figure out who is all in the same boat here, right? Who's too different? Who's who's similar to each other? Those are questions about race. They're questions about immigration. They're questions about religion. They're questions about skill. And they're really fundamental to American working class history. 
the way we approach that in this episode is by kind of beginning to discuss the kind of different streams of proletarianization, the different kind of points of origin for the people who make up the American proletariat and the American working class, people in chattel slavery, immigrants kind of coming over largely from Europe, farmers locked into a growing American kind of frontier. And we kind of start from these kind of broad strokes of kind of early 19th and mid 19th century American history and kind of work our way up to a kind of key moment in 1877, both when the period of Reconstruction ends and when we're kind of on the precipice of a new kind of era in American working class history with the emergence of some of the great railway strikes and the kind of birth of uh, nascent forms of industrial organization. Judge said he's an honest man, I got to set him free. Then they brought another trial to frame him if they can. But right by Harry Bridges stands every working man. Oh, the FBI is worried, the bosses, they are scared. They can't depart six million men, they know. And we're not going to let them send Harry over the sea. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and build the CIO. So we thought we would begin the discussion first by moving pretty far back in U.S. labor history with an overview of processes of class formation across the 19th century. And in this, we turned to the late, great, beloved historian and militant Mike Davis. Mike Davis distinguished himself himself in many different ways. Maybe we could take a second and just do a little tribute to him. Uh, But he also wrote Prisoners of the American Dream, which in our view is one of the most helpful and kind of efficient overviews in 19th century working class history. So we're going to go through that as part of the structure of the discussion today. But first, let's just talk about Mike for a moment, maybe, and who he was and what he meant to us. Yeah, I mean, one reason I think we all um, immediately agreed that this essay would be a great way to start off the entire series was not just its efficiency for, you know, with moving through hundreds of years of history, but the way it grew out of uh, Davis's commitments uh, as a practical socialist and, you know, supporter of working class politics. The essay is written in the 1980s and really reflects his attempts to come to terms with the total collapse of labor as an organized political force around the time of the 1980 election. You know, the essay starts with this great vignette of workers in Philadelphia sitting around on election day in a bar talking about why they're not going to vote for anyone. Uh, And he says, to answer this question, you have to start all the way at the beginning. And I think that spirit of connecting, you know, a long durée history with uh, contemporary political purpose is really typical and, and special about Davis's work. Yeah, it was like one of the first essays that Mike started writing. You know, his first book is published by the time he's 40, and he had kind of over two decades of serious political militancy and activism kind of behind him at the point at which he started to kind of tackle at a certain kind of nadir of the American left in the early Reagan years. Um, the kind of question about why there was no socialism, why working class politics was so diminished, so weak, so often absent from the American kind of political scene. But before kind of Mike began that kind of research project, he was kind of wrestling with it in a much more practical way in Southern California as a member of CORE, uh, early civil rights organization, also as a member of SDS, Students for Democratic Society. His activities there, combined with his decision to stay in his girlfriend's dorm, helped kick him out of Reed College early on. 
but Mike kind of was a kind of itinerant, serious working class intellectual and organizer, spent time in the CP, spent time as a founding member of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, um, which is now part of the coalition, kind of stewarding that organization. And yeah, so this essay kind of comes as a kind of culmination of, of a long career as a kind of militant organizer, dealing with questions of working class disorganization that he observed, whether he was a as a kind of communist activist uh, in L.A. or as a truck driver kind of going back and forth across California. And I feel like we should say the essay is called Why the American Working Class is Different. And, you know, this is a really kind of well-trod and even sort of cliched issue for, I'm sure, all of us who, as people who have thought about, written about, or engaged with both the history of the left and the history of the United States, right? American exceptionalism um, as a kind of concept uh right it's a power it's such a powerful one that like presidential candidates get asked about what they think about it right uh but it's really one that's forged in a kind of cold war context especially it predates that uh, but it, i guess reaches kind of apex in a cold war context and there's always been competing theories i guess going actually back to the 19th century and even in some ways to tocqueville uh, in the early 19th century about the sources of it and i think davis in this essay what's distinctive about it is that he doesn't do the move that many U.S. labor historians did in the 70s and 80s, which is to resist the idea that the American working class is different and to say, actually, no, we have an equally distinguished tradition of working class struggles in this country as in any other country. And in fact, maybe it's even sort of the same as what they have in England or France. There's an essay by Sean Wilentz, for example, called Against Exceptionalism that makes that argument. Instead, what he does is accept right, from this vantage point that we were talking about in the 1980s, that the U.S. working class is different, but insists on a kind of materialist and very historical, sort of structural, I think, account of what the nature of that difference is and how the different factors to which it's often attributed kind of compound with each other. And just, you know, to say a word about you know, not just why we chose this essay and why we love Mike Davis, uh, but why we wanted to start a podcast on the history of the CIO, you know, by going all the way back to the beginning of the American working class is because the the absence of something like the CIO in earlier periods of American history is a kind of index of the American difference or the American exceptionalism that Davis is talking about, right? The CIO uh, was an organization of industrial unions, which at least aspirationally spoke in the name of all American workers, uh, men and women, black and white, skilled and unskilled, immigrant and native. And just as importantly, the CIO had a voice in politics, right? It organized as a political action committee on behalf of labor's goals within electoral politics. And so when Davis is talking about the absence of, you know, socialism, social democracy, or a certain kind of class organization in U.S. history, one way of thinking about that is he's asking why didn't something like the CIO or like what the CIO wanted to be emerge before the 1930s? That doesn't mean that, you know, I think that it wasn't an issue or wasn't an aspiration that many parts of the American left and the American labor movement didn't have. It is a watchword, often after the defeat of almost every kind of major working class upsurge by the second half of the 19th century, certainly after the kind of civil war. So for generations, people are talking about industrial unionism. Big Bill Haywood, who's a founder and leader of the IWW, will be talking about him later. He talked about industrial unionism as socialism in its work clothes, uh, precisely because it signaled and it kind of symbolized the practice of proletarian equality and the fight both against, you know, shitty bosses, um, against the kind of dictates of private property and its managers, but also because it, it kind of symbolized 
a different kind of practice of politics, a different kind of way of being organized as a class. Fragile Juggernaut is brought to you by Haymarket Books, publisher of a wide range of essential books, especially relevant to listeners like you. One that you might be particularly interested in reading is Class Struggle Unionism by Joe Burns. The concept of class struggle unionism is rooted in the belief that our union fights exist within a larger struggle between an exploiting billionaire class and the working class, which actually produces the goods and services in society. From that simple proposition flows a powerful and radical form of unionism. Drawing on years of labor activism and study of labor history, in this book, Joe Burns shows how this approach to organization can create a more militant, more democratic, and more fighting labor movement. As the UE General President Carl Rosen puts it, anyone trying to rebuild an effective U.S. labor movement needs to read this book. You can find it at haymarketbooks.org, where all paperback books are 20% off every day. So should we get into it? Why is, why is the American working class different? There are kind of like almost ossified explanations that scholars developed over the course of the 20th century, whether it's, you know, racial divisions, the political system, the existence of like undeveloped proletariat, the existence of, of small scale property owners across the U.S. You know, land holding, holding was um, very widespread in the U.S. compared to other countries. And all of these things are kind of true. But, you know, one of the points in this chapter, in this essay, is that they don't, like, predetermine failure. There are cycles of struggle. And one of the, I think, like, powerful concepts that he introduces here is that there's a kind of, like, sedimented historical experience, which each failure kind of contributes to what happens next, contributes to changes in direction or strategy or outlooks. And so... It's not that those failures can't be overcome, but they matter a lot. One reason that someone might reject the idea that the U.S. is different is that there's been tons of class conflict in U.S. history, right? The 19th century in the U.S. sees as much industrial violence as any um, developing capitalist country. You know, there's more, every, I think. More. Every business cycle, there's, you know, something that can uncontroversially be described as, you know, open warfare at some point between workers and their bosses. So if the working class is different, it's not because there's never been conflict, right? And understanding the, the way that the the existence, even the uh, exceptionality of the conflict has given way to this absence is, I think, something that Davis tries to wrestle with and we're, we're trying to understand as well. Key to Davis's point, right, is that the U.S. working class is forged differently, right, in various ways. It's differentiated. I always think about the kind of basic ingredients of the U.S. working class emerging in the 19th century from slavery, right, and then the kind of crisis of an abolition of slavery and the question of free labor. The native-born, let's call it small property class, which I think encompasses, maybe we could argue about this, but encompasses both kind of small farmers and also artisans, right? Artisans, at least in the early part of the century, have a kind of crossover, sort of proletarian, semi-bourgeois, both in either kind of position in some ways. Classic example would be like a shoemaker in the early 19th century. That would be someone who, I mean, there's different versions of it. So in the early 19th century, you could think about a shoemaker who like makes whole shoes, 
right? Uh, or at least makes much of a shoe. And they, they, they own the means to do so, probably, right? Right. right. Yeah. And that's the sense in which you can kind of see them almost as petit bourgeois, although that's also not quite right because they're working, right? So they, they own tools, they own a workshop or run a workshop, but maybe they rent it, right? And maybe they also employ a couple of apprentices and journeymen, right? And so that's a kind of class position that doesn't really exist in quite the same way now, but was very important to the early phases of industrialization. By the late 19th century, we're going to be talking more about artisans and craftsmen having been sort of absorbed into factories, but still as a distinctive kind of layer in industrial production. So, you know, now imagine that shoemaker in a shoe factory that is not mechanized enough to just get rid of him, but instead uh, he is more clearly a kind of employee of the owner of the factory. And, you know, he's still the one who kind of understands the process and in some ways supervises it but is increasingly subordinated to a kind of bigger owner. That's a kind of classic process of the 19th century. So to recap, slavery, small property, and then, of course, coming into the bottom of the free labor market, streams of immigrants. It's worth saying maybe that, you know, the working class is also forged politically on the basis of the kind of struggles that it gets involved in. And, you know, this is something Mike talks about at great length, that it's hard to understand the kind of formation and the forces which ended up shaping the working class in Europe and the European context, especially without understanding the struggle for the franchise, which is a kind of hallmark of some of the major kind of working class struggles in the early parts of the 19th century, mid parts of the 19th century, the revolutions that they kind of forge and, and participate in, either as a leading or subordinate actor. The situation is different in the United States uh, because the revolution kind of predates the emergence of uh, the industrial worker in many respects. And the kind of question of the franchise is pretty different out here. Right. And just to you know, make that concrete, you know, in the 1830s or something, relatively few people in the U.S. are factory workers, but relatively many people, especially white men, are allowed to vote. And the combination of those facts is really different than the way things will go somewhere like Western Europe, where the fight for universal male suffrage kind of goes hand in hand with the movement of a lot of people into the, the industrial workforce. It means that workers don't need their own organization as workers to fight for suffrage. And so instead- They're already workers, Democrats or Republicans before they're, they're workers. That's right. And to the extent that class conflict exists, it's not necessarily between workers and property owners in, as capitalists. It's between producers and like bankers and merchants and land speculators, people who were thought of as like parasitic middlemen who didn't actually work themselves, but who kind of like extracted wealth from people who produced things. Yeah, I think like it could be helpful here to draw a comparison more explicitly between what is a very kind of classic European stylized understanding of the process of class formation over the 19th century and the kind of concrete events of, of, the, of the 19th century that we're going to talk more about. I mean, it, this is sort of a French, this is sort of turning the French experience into the general example, but it works well enough, right? The idea that there's a kind of phase of bourgeois revolution that begins in the 18th century against feudalism, right? And that's complicated in how clearly we can actually understand that to be what happened. But nonetheless, the you know, the kind of frustrated bourgeoisie held down by aristocratic privilege turns on the aristocracy and the old regime, but discovers in a cycle of revolutionary attempts between the late 18th century and the mid 19th, that it's actually not able to overcome the bourgeoisie and supplant it with a liberal state without summoning to its cause kind of emerging proletariat, which is 
pretty underdeveloped still at this point. It has no political organization or not much of its own. And classically then in 1848, right, this contradiction kind of becomes visible, right? That the what the bourgeois revolutionists and the, and the proletarian participants want out of revolution is actually not the same. It's out of that kind of contrast that the Communist Manifesto is written in 1848. And, you know, there are ways that the U.S. experience fits that in ways that it doesn't and that the Civil War can kind of be slotted into a version of that sequence, sort of, right? Sort of uncomfortably and sort of successfully. Before we get to the Civil War, maybe we should speak a little about the, that first wave of immigrants. Yeah, 1848 is a, is a great year to bring up because of the German immigration. And the year before, 1847, is a, a kind of high point of the Irish inflow, right, of, of people uh, fleeing the famine. So you've got a sort of first wave of people coming who are not English-speaking, uh, in many cases not Protestants. Uh, they come from a variety of class backgrounds, but the Irish especially are, are quite desperately poor and so find employment digging canals, building railways, being sort of the common laborer and being excluded uh, to a large extent from that kind of small producer political economy that we had said was one of those major components of, of early American political economy. Also, that small producer political economy is itself not totally disintegrating, but is coming under quite severe pressure, right? Uh, small farmers in New England are finding that their sons are not able to get their own farmsteads and are having to move to the city and seek jobs as apprentices or whatever, right? Um, and then similarly, craftsmen in the cities are finding that larger and larger workshops are kind of succeeding more and more and pricing them out and out-competing them, putting pressure on the kind of apprentice to master craftsman kind of trajectory. And that older source of kind of petty producer livelihood. But there's still this kind of ideal or like aspiration that that old economy could still exist if it could be reproduced in the West and, you know, small producers could continue to own land in the West. So maybe maybe you're a wage worker today, but tomorrow you could um, become a property owner and, and kind of work for yourself. And if, so, of course, like this is a process rooted in, in colonialism and Western expansion and and that kind of like vision of expansion, which is almost like a safety valve, is what's going to kind of bring that northern economy into conflict with with the South kind of lead up into the Civil War. Yeah, maybe uh, it's worth kind of going to Abraham Lincoln here for a moment, actually. I, I often find that people are kind of amazed at how much Lincoln talked about labor and the meaning of labor and uh, how central questions of what it means to be a laborer and what under what conditions one can kind of properly do that were really important in 19th century politics. Um, and going to what you were saying, Emma, you know, the petty producer economy is still significant enough, right, at the, in the kind of crisis of the union in the 1850s and 1860s, that its defense is a really key part of the anti-slavery coalition, right? That white small farmers or people who would like to be small farmers or people who would like to kind of get on that apprentice to master ladder understand that there is pressure on those opportunities. They associate that pressure with the contest over the West, as you're saying, and they have to kind of think about, well, what does it mean to actually be a, a citizen who works? And what is the relationship between citizenship and work? And there's a speech that Lincoln gives in Wisconsin when he's, I think shortly before he's campaigning for president. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. 
He says, the world is agreed that labor is the source from which human wants are mainly supplied. There is no dispute upon this point. From this point, however, men immediately diverge. Much disputation is maintained as to the best way of applying and controlling the labor element. By some, it is assumed that labor is available only in connection with capital, that nobody labors unless somebody else owning capital, somehow by the use of that capital, induces him to do it. Having assumed this, they proceed to consider whether it is best that capital shall hire laborers and thus induce them to work by their own consent or buy them and drive them to it without their consent. Having proceeded so far, they naturally conclude that all laborers are necessarily either hired laborers or slaves. They further assume that whoever is once a hired laborer is fatally fixed in that condition for life. And thence again, that his condition is as bad as or worse than that of a slave. This is the mudsill theory, meaning there needs to be a kind of so-called mudsill class, that's to say racially subordinate, under the burden of all the, all the difficult labor. A foundation for the whole social system. Right. But then he says, but another class of reasoners hold the opinion that there is no such relation between capital and labor as assumed, and that there is no such thing as a free man being fatally fixed for life in the condition of a hired laborer, that both these assumptions are false and all inferences from them groundless. They hold that labor is prior to and independent of capital, that in fact, capital is the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. The labor can exist without capital, but the capital could never have existed without labor. Hence, they hold that labor is the superior, greatly the superior of capital. And you sometimes see that quote circulate, like to say like, hey, Lincoln was a socialist. But that's actually not quite what it is, right? What he's saying is, I think this thing that Emma is talking about, of the kind of petty producer ideal. Right. There's no idea here of a, of a natural or inevitable antagonism between labor and capital, just of having them sort of properly ordered so that if you're a hired man at one point in your life, it's not a fixed condition. You could go on to become a capitalist, you know, through the fruits of your own labor. Lincoln thinks it would be unfortunate to have a large permanent class of wage workers, but he doesn't want to abolish wages, you know, in general. Which which becomes a kind of seed for the dissolution of the of the working class movement that finds expression in in the Civil War and in the victory of the Union. Right. So, I mean, this is one of the things that, like, gets working people of various stripes on board with the Union cause, not because they're necessarily abolitionists, you know, some were, but most weren't. Rather, there's a very real concern that if slavery and large, large plantations are going to expand into the West, then they're not going to leave any room for this kind of like petty producer economy. And so there's really like a coalition that forms in what becomes the Free Labor Party and then the Republican Party, where you have you have some capitalists, you have some farmers who are kind of organizing on their own and end up demanding the creation of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is formed in the Civil War. And you have kind of workers who are committed to this, this vision of free labor, which I think the Lincoln quote kind of encapsulates. And so, you know, the Republican Party ends up being this very like tenuous coalition between all of these different groups. And one kind of throwaway line that Mike Davis says is that, you know, it's kind of a shame that labor didn't forge its own wing within the party because it was very easily kind of subsumed. And that coalition in the absence of slavery is going to become under kind of increasing, increasing strain. We should say it explicitly that this producer's vision is also a a vision of how gender works and the sort of the, the independent subject in this vision is a male head of household who may have under his authority uh, family dependence, right? Whether those are 
his wife, his children, various hired workers of different kinds. And so there's, you know, only certain kinds of people, even in theory, qualify for this kind of independence. And it's also um, one that's racialized and has ethnic overtones. So it's, you know, an open question whether Catholic Irish immigrants uh, sort of have what it takes to achieve this kind of independence, even in theory. And so they have, in addition to any sort of concrete lack of economic opportunity, they also faced a kind of theoretical objection or at least a, a question about their qualification for this this kind of a political economy. Yeah, I feel like that's worth just spelling out in a little more detail because the kind of ideological core of this idea of independence is that you can only be a competent, virtuous citizen of the republic if you have the freedom to exercise your own judgment and conscience, right? That's kind of at the at the center of it. And that's why it's important that labor not be subordinate to capital, right, in the, in the kind of Lincoln vision. Because if labor is subordinate to capital in a systemic way, then citizens kind of lose the quality that makes them able to be citizens. However, women are seen as legal non-persons, right? And so they're sort of fundamentally, constitutively unable to be independent in that way, right? They don't, you know, they don't have the right to own property after, independently after they're married. They can't bring suit, et cetera. And the Irish or Catholics in general, right, because of the connection to an important, durable, powerful institution in the form of the church are seen as having dual loyalty, basically, and therefore, again, can't freely exercise conscience. It's true. So, yeah, the household is kind of like at the center of this economy, which means that there's a, a, you know, a male head and he has dependents who may or may not do wage work. You know, women, women perform wage work not just men, but the the household with, with the kind of patriarchal head was at the center of this economy and, and this kind of language of producerism. But I would also say that producerism is very malleable and, and not fully coherent as an ideology. And so it's going to change over the course of the 19th century. And it becomes a language almost that the labor movement is going to inherit for better or worse. You know, you have Eugene Debs, who, you know, in the early 20th century is socialist candidate for president, you have him saying something like, um, we have to unite the producing classes against the money power. This is a language that is very ubiquitous across different labor organizations, and it's very slippery at the same time. Um, You know, it has the potential to eventually unite different people, but it also has the potential to paper over differences between different classes. So that brings us sort of all into the Civil War, where a bunch of this stuff comes together. What does it mean to think about the Civil War as a moment, um, you know, not in, in military history or even uh, high political history, but a moment in the history of, of class formation and the formation of the working class in particular? Well, I mean, I think it's a huge rupture in a lot of ways. I mean, the emancipation of four million working people in the South, which is also like the largest confiscation of private property, I think, in U.S. history. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois calls the Civil War famously a general strike, meaning that enslaved people really did withdraw their labor from plantations across the South, slowed the Southern economy, joined the Union Army in some cases. Um, And so you see this huge number of formerly enslaved people just mobilizing in dramatic ways. And, And that in a way that combines the fight for economic you know, interest as workers and the demand for political rights and voting rights. Um, so it's it's a, a moment in American history when there's 
something more like what Gabe was calling the classic European example, where there's a, a sort of a revolutionary movement of working class people that combines the economic and political in a way that it's very hard to, to separate them at this moment. It's hard to overemphasize just how important these currents of self-organization in the plantation South were to kind of tipping the cause of the war in the North's favor. I mean, like they, the organizing didn't start in the context of the Civil War. You can kind of pick up a memoir from a formerly enslaved person like Osborne Perry Anderson has probably one of the best, most lucid memoirs of this kind of genre, where he describes pretty vividly how much uh, meetings of enslaved people would kind of take place in the middle of the night, often between plantations, listening in on high politics, waiting to hear whether or not Fremont would win a national election prior to Abraham Lincoln in like 1856, gauging their own kind of strategies and practices, whether it's flight or trying to slow things down on the plantation on the basis of what was happening in high politics or later on the kind of march of the Union Army through the South. And his own itinerary is one which symbolizes sort of an era. Uh, he was someone who was moved around through different parts of the plantation south, participated in secret clandestine meetings during the kind of period of slavery prior to the war. When the war breaks out, he flees into kind of like Union lines, joins the U.S. Union military, and later ends up kind of settling up north with a kind of other community of free blacks. But it's a, it's a signal of, I think, a lot of the ways that working class, you know, proletarians, maybe not working class, but proletarians, people who are dispossessed and in bondage, their own self-organization really did kind of course through the war, also transforming the meaning of the war as a result. And it has consequences for other groups too, right? Well, the centrality of the Southern question to the emerging working class movement of the mid-19th century in the United States means the kind of program that can be advanced is, is profoundly different in the United States. You know, the, in Europe, you have writing of the Communist Manifesto, that's something that doesn't have the same kind, I mean, it can't have the same kind of resonance in the United States where there's this question of the growth of, of chattel slavery. And that, I think, the, the, the fact that the program has to confront this is the beginning of, of one of the first defeats in, in the kind of litany of defeats that Davis uses to, to structure this, this introductory essay. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, for, for Davis and, you know, even for like Eric Foner, suffrage and, and participation in electoral politics are really important. But the first demand that freed people made was not for suffrage. It was for land. It was for redistribution of, of Southern property. And suffrage was in some way like a consolation in the wake of the failure of the redistribution of land. And when suffrage comes, you know, Black communities, both men and women, mobilize around it. Women can't vote, but they still kind of come out um, as a like communal activity. But it's not actually the first and most important demand that they have, which I think is is kind of important to note. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you start to see like fissures in this Republican coalition that exists, and and those fissures are kind of growing in the North as well as. Northern workers are trying to kind of expand on the possibilities of this moment. They force their, you know, fellow party members to kind of reckon with like what could potentially be a radical moment and then move away from it. Right. I mean, there's I think that kind of reinforces the way that the war seems like a belated and the most violent of the 1848 revolutions. In a way, you could say the I mean, if the war is at some level a confrontation between two regional ruling classes, 
right? The Northern mercantile and industrial ruling classes, especially industrial and the Southern planter class, right? The, the Northern coalition triumphs because it's able to reach much deeper into society to mobilize many, many more layers of society under it toward its cause, right? The planters can kind of do that with some small white farmers a little bit, but even there, there's resistance, right? And that's sort of the limit of their, of their ability to mobilize their society to their cause. Whereas because of the coalition dynamic that Emma was talking about, the union political leadership actually has something to offer in various ways, right? Meaningfully to the small farmer in the North, to the petty industrial producer, and ultimately to the slave. And even to the, the Irish immigrant who, you know, there's a there's obviously a you know, massive draft riot in New York uh, in which mostly Irish people riot both against the Protestant ruling class and against uh, free black people in the city. But on the other hand, you know, they're able to give tons of Irish people guns in the Union Army and they don't shoot their officers, which is not what would have happened if the South had tried to arm their own enslaved people. But the fact of the riot then points to the, the fissure, the opening of this fissure, which becomes the kind of second period of class formation and, 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 and defeat in the Reconstruction era and the ch- political challenge of the populist party. I was going to say, it's also worth just maybe mentioning that like the union or the, rather the civil war and the kind of belated kind of bourgeois revolution that it might represent was driven by it's both like maybe an intra elite kind of competition, but also from the dynamic struggles of popular orders, working class people, but they were not necessarily marching under the same banner or with the same political traditions. And if that kind of struggle represented a kind of temporary synthesis or unity between the traditions of free soil, free men, free labor of the kind of white artisans of North and the kind of struggles and political traditions of the peasant dream, as some historians call it, of the former plantation South. It was a temporary and and unlasting unity, one that tragically gave way to division, both partisan, uh, one marked also by incredible violence throughout the South. And yeah, as Andrew says, this paves the way for the model or the shape that other working class struggles take going forward through the 19th century. It's one that's shaped by this violent disunity. Yeah, and in the absence of that Southern ruling, ruling class, the Republican Party, which, you know, for a period of time really controls like the levers of economic decision making, they just kind of go crazy with this very aggressive economic program focused especially on the West. So while fighting the Civil War, the Union is, you know, creating a transcontinental railroad. It is accelerating colonial kind of campaigns against Native people in the West. Um, It's passing really like monumental land legislation to encourage settlement. It is privatizing mineral lands in a kind of general way for the first time. And so it's really encouraging this developmental takeoff that's going to accelerate in the West especially. And it's also then in the immediate aftermath of the war, looking to the South and trying to reorganize the Southern economy. So there's this just like an enormous amount of new economic activity driven by the Republican Party and its vision. And it unifies the continent economically, right? Kind of the continent had been a kind of space of real economic heterogeneity, right? Different sort of regional economies that work differently and we're not all linked to each other. And that really changes. What kind of workers does this new nationwide mode of capital accumulation, what kind of workers does it produce? Factory workers. Yeah. Railroad workers. <laughs> Miners. And traveling, I think the, the mobility, this, you know, this is, this is something that 
David says somewhere, you know, workers in, in the States can vote with their feet. The origins of what would become by, you know, the 1880s and the 1890s, the internationals, the affiliates of the AFL, those national unions come into being because they have to deal with a carpenter who has had enough of living in Cincinnati and goes to St. Louis and then ends up in Salt Lake City. And the, the conditions of the trade in the new city and the regulation of, of, of that craft across these cities that are on different sides of the continent has to suddenly become something that the union has to deal with this, which is a new thing. That kind of mobility, it really does mark the biography of all of the leaders of the era, like William Z. Foster, like a leading Communist Party member, someone who organizes um, a great steel strike, is a hugely important figure for the whole series. His kind of life, you know, someone who grew up in the kind of Irish slums of Philadelphia, checks all of these kind of regional boxes. He spends some time in the South. He is in the Pacific Northwest, where's where he first kind of cut his teeth and encounters syndicalism. He gets on a boat and ends up in both Australia and South Africa, I think, as well as East Asia. So he is kind of really does represent this, not only this itinerant character of a lot of the American working class that, you know, we could talk about any number of labor leaders who had a similar kind of biography, but also this kind of working class cosmopolitanism. Labor historians are divided about whether or not this is a, a strength or a weakness in terms of the durability of, of organizing campaigns or political traditions of American unionism, but it's undoubtedly a feature. Well, and Davis makes this point, right, whereas industrialization in Europe in the 19th century happens in cities that have, you know, in many cases been there for a thousand years, right? In the United States, west of the Appalachians, industrialization, the factory makes the city, Right. Someone realizes that, oh, this would be a convenient place to uh, mine minerals, obviously, which are location specific or to have a transportation entrepot of some kind between rail and rivers. It's close to mineral resources. Pittsburgh is the case I know really well. Right. Pittsburgh is where it is because, you know, it's the easternmost major port on the Mississippi River system. Right. The Ohio River originates there and flows into the Mississippi uh, and it's close to coal fields. And so they can bring the iron to the coal. They can use the river to do that. They can make steel and they can ship it on the railroads off to the East Coast. But it's true of many of these cities, right, that they basically are born industrial in the West. Maybe people remember from a high school or college history class that that is often uh, taken to be the end of, of political reconstruction, right, with the removal of federal troops in the South. But there's a lot of other stuff going on. So what's the, what's the American working class in 1877 look like? Well, maybe to start in the South, since Andrew pointed us that way, by the 1870s, by the mid or late 1870s, as Emma said, right, the kind of demand for land for the freed people has been defeated, resoundingly rejected by their own former coalition partners in the Republican Party, uh, who have used the power of the federal government to ultimately drive them back into a kind of economic subordination to a reborn master class, right, to whom they are now connected through relations of tenancy and sharecropping, varieties of debt peonage, basically. And there is an important political struggle that happens in the South, basically between planters and kind of merchant slash banker figures. You know, a sort of whole new system of exploitation of this kind of debt peon agricultural labor class is constructed anew, right? And it captures small white farmers also, although there's a kind of less of a system of racial terror to keep them in line. Meanwhile, though, the process of economic unification, right, is causing the railroad to come through the South, dragging what remnants there were of kind of relatively economically autonomous peasant agriculture into the world economy through unrelenting pressure to produce cotton. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important point because 
Once the, the general population of working people in the South is no longer enslaved, there's new pressure to enclose on the lands that had been able to kind of prop up this small scale farming peasant uh, population of white farmers. So actually slavery had allowed many white farmers to escape proletarianization, to escape dispossession. And in the wake of emancipation during reconstruction, there are these moves to put up fences or, or to um, reorganize land in such a way that, you know, farmers are no longer able to, to herd their livestock, which is, you know, a practice of consumption that many people had relied on. Um, and so at the same time that you're getting this like enfranchised black proletariat, um, you're also seeing small scale white producers kind of declining into the ranks of the proletariat as well. Are they going to kind of align with one another politically? Like that is the crucial question and um, an object of major struggle, right? And there are moments where they succeed in doing so briefly, right? But uh, that's not the systematic pattern. It's very tense, obviously, (laughs) Um, but it's also complicated because the material conditions are not quite the same, right? You know, you might be a farmer who's like slowly declining from, you know, land ownership to tenancy, maybe to work, but you're not immediately thrust into wage relations in the way that so many uh, Black workers were. And that looks like what? Like maybe having a child or two, maybe slight like work on someone else's land or try to search in the town for work or maybe spending some of your own day divided between work on your own kind of plot and work on the plot of another? Yeah. Or like, do you have um, like livestock, even if you don't have land yourself? So, you know, do you have kind of like agricultural tools that you can bring to the table? Emma, could you say a little bit more about how the existence of the slave system buffered white farmers? Yeah. So you get you have like the cotton belt, right, where there are major plantations. The economy is organized around commodity production, cotton primarily, but others, too. And the ruling class in the South had pretty much controlled state legislatures, and they decided where railroads went. But, you know, they weren't necessarily interested in building railroads in in parts of the South where you weren't producing major commodities, where small-scale farmers were kind of subsisting in a, like what some people call like a safety-first economy, meaning you produce everything that you need to live for yourself, And maybe you produce a little extra stuff on the side and you can sell for a market, but you're not primarily dependent on selling things in the market. So you can kind of like live on your on your own on your land. Now, that is often kind of like contingent on access to an open range. So you might own a little bit of property yourself, your house, your household and your farm. But you don't necessarily own enough property to like maintain your your livestock or to hunt And so after the Civil War, two things happen. One, those hunting grounds and herding grounds get enclosed because landowners don't want freed people to have access to them in the ways that small farmers used to. So freed people don't have access to those commons, but also small farmers are losing their access to those commons. That's one. And then two, especially like the Republican-controlled legislatures during Reconstruction, are doing like a railroad frenzy. They're building railroads everywhere and not just Republicans. This continues under the Democrats as well. 
But suddenly, like, the South is crisscrossed by railroads in ways it never had been before. And part of that is like, okay, planters hadn't been interested in the forests of the, of the South. Forests and timber were not the major commodity that the South produced. And so capitalists coming in looked at those Southern timberlands and thought like, well, this is an undeveloped, like, waste place is what they called them, and we need to get in there. Um, so there were parts of the South that were not organized around commodity production, like timber, where you see railroads getting built, capital pouring in, and kind of older forms of life becoming impossible. And, and the opportunity many saw in the construction of the railroad system actually comes to decide the, the critical election in 1876, which results in the withdrawal of the, of the final Union occupation force in, in the remaining states. I always like to emphasize this, but it doesn't get taught a lot. But, you know, there's a clear prefiguration of kinds of business conflict corruption that we, you know, come to, come to think about, you know, in the 20s, Teapot Dome, or, or even later, you know, the George W. Bush administration's connections to the oil industry or something. But, the, you know, you can see a, 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 a much uh, longer heritage around the, you know, the Electoral College vote in 1876, which is immediately followed then by the explosive year of 1877, when the kind of new working class steps onto the stage with a national railroad strike. Before we fully dive into 1877, I think we should say a word about deflation. Yes, the crisis, the, cri- the, the, the business crisis that, that threatens all of these new railroad corporations is... is instigated with a financial panic in 1873 and declining prices. It threatens them and it's also in some ways a consequence of the, the railroad investment cycle. Could you say more about that? The, you know, the, the 1870s are often seen as, uh, you know, some of the first instances of the classic capitalist patterns of crisis or, or the business cycle, um, you know, in which the economic system itself seems to generate these rhythms of over and under production, of rising and falling profitability, of rising and falling levels of investment. Um, of course, throughout history, there had always been, you know, seasonal patterns and there had always been, you know, weather events. Uh, but this this system of patterns seemed to come from within the economic system itself. And, a, you know, a huge amount of the investment that was going on, and especially the most volatile investment, was in the form of railroads, right? And so I think without too much violence to reality, you can think of the big downturns which happened, you know, in 1873 and again later in the decade as sort of the the busts that follow periods of railroad boom, right? You build a railroad, then there's too many railroads. The the cycle of expectations, which drive uh, railroad investment, which in turn drives a lot of macroeconomic activity, is just basically unstable and, and generates these waves throughout the decade. Well, and it has really important kind of social and immediate consequences for the phenomena we've been talking about in a couple ways I, I think we could point to. One is, although I won't try to explain what causes what macroeconomically, right? There's an insistence by the elite elements of the Republican coalition on how the war debt be managed and how the monetary supply is organized, uh, in particular to return to a hard gold standard, right? In the aftermath of the war. And the question of currency, it becomes probably the single most important political question for the remainder of the 19th century. So going to a hard gold standard, certainly contributes in important ways to uh, the kind of brutal deflationary conditions. And the backdrop here is that the the Civil War had been financed through a big expansion of the public debt and through the issuance of a a paper currency, which was a new and, and, uh, as it turned out, temporary thing in in U.S. history. Right. It's when the, the term greenback is invented. 
um, for the dollar. Second, uh, just to kind of make more concrete what deflation means for some of the kinds of people we've been talking about, to return to the agricultural South, um, right, deflation is a persistent decline in prices. That's, that's what it means. And my understanding is that basically cotton, for example, sees really brutal, persistent price declines, which has the effect, Emma, correct me if I'm wrong, has the effect of obliging small Southern farmers to plant more and more and more cotton to try to keep up with their debts, which then in a classic crisis of overproduction causes the price to continue to fall. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, um, there's just literally like no cash circulating, which is partly to do with the banking system that the Republican Party put in place during the Civil War, um, which contained like some concessions to New York bankers. And so a lot of things were bought on credit in the peripheries in the South and parts of the West. Credit was really expensive. And one of the reasons that small scale farmers started producing cotton, there was like one year of, of a spike in prices when people kind of said, okay, let's, let's grow some cotton. Um, but also cotton was what merchants would accept as collateral. So you have to pledge the future cotton crop in order to get access to credit basically. Um, and so it was in many ways like a coerced choice to enter this cycle of, of cotton production, overproduction. Today we talk about this in terms of the business cycle and monetary policy, but these these weren't words that would mean anything to, to many people. But I, I think it is a to, to answer a question Ben asked maybe you know earlier in this discussion about what kind of working class is produced after the Civil War. Well, it's one that is now conditioned by a cyclical rise and fall in prices and, and accompanying growth and contraction of business, which means unemployment. And wage and wage cuts, right? You know, so the, the railroad version of the, the cotton cycle we were talking about might be one in which, you know, there's a rise in competition among railroads because, you know, now there are too many of them or because demand is falling short because there's already deflation. When there's this kind of competition, railroads respond by trying to cut costs, which often means cutting wages, right? So it's, it's um, large-scale unemployment, which emerges sort of as a concept around this time, but also the wage cuts, right? And I think a lot of these strikes are brought on um, by business attempts to cut costs uh, by cutting wages at the bottom of one of these new business cycles. Yeah, it is, it is the catalyst for the big railroad strike, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. I think it was a 10% wage cut that first hit workers in Martinsburg, West Virginia. I think it was on the back of two or three other wage cuts they had also kind of taken on the, on the chin in the last prior months. And at this point, they just kind of refused to send out the trains. I think there was something close to, gosh, does anyone remember how many? I think 600 trains uh, were kind of stuck at the Baltimore and Ohio station in West Virginia at the kind of start of the strike. And even as the militia sent in, no one is able to kind of restart these trains, which kind of catches like a prairie fire and encourages, sends almost a signal out to, to workers across the country that, that now is the time to kind of stand up to some of those attacks on their wages that was happening across the country. So it picks up in, in, in Maryland. It takes place in New York. It stretches all the way out to kind of San Francisco. And Mike Davis calls it the first nationwide class confrontation that takes place. Maybe we don't do or don't feel like that's true, given how you want to read maybe some of the Civil War history that we just talked about. But there's a kind of nationwide pattern of class conflict emerging here, anchored in particular by these railroad workers, which thread together the nation as even a 
meaningful political concept in the latter half of the 19th century. And I feel like it's worth saying about the 1877 strike, a couple things. One is that there's no organization there before it, right? It has a kind of what we might call spontaneous quality. And very rapidly in cities all over the country, railroad workers find that they are able to kind of call whole populations out with them, right? So it takes on a quality of a kind of mob action, if you want to think of it that way, or a riot. And in Pittsburgh, for example, again, to return to my, my, my place, the kind of crowd confronts and basically overcomes the local militia, National Guard, scatters them. They try to take refuge in the, in the arsenal in Pittsburgh, and the arsenal refuses to give them refuge because they understand that if they allow them in, uh, the strikers will tear the place down brick by brick. And so instead, they kind of melt away, and the, and the state has to bring reinforcements from the other side of the state, right? So the problem the state recognizes was that um, there's too much local sympathy, and they have to bring sort of outsiders. So I think those two dimensions of it also really kind of mark it as a kind of beginning in a certain way, right? Not a total beginning, as Ben is saying, but there's no pre-existing organization, and it has this quality that kind of connects it to the kinds of kind of crowd actions that characterize things like the French Revolution, for example. Or the Paris Commune, which would, had happened less than a decade earlier and was on everyone's mind. Right, and which everyone in America immediately associated with this. <laughs> the apex probably of the strike maybe is in St. Louis, of all places. Uh, in 1877, as the railroad strike is kind of raging on, railroad workers in that city, it's an important kind of crossroads for a number of rail lines. Uh, they launch a strike and they're joined by a number of other industries uh, who are also kind of critically some of the industries we've been talking about as core to the developing proletariat and the kind of patterns of economic growth in the period. That's canal workers, that's miners, uh, manufacturing industries, but also has the community riot-like character that, that Gabe was just describing. They don't just bring the city to a standstill, uh, quite literally a group that's called in the press the internationalists, which is to say people associated with Marx's first international end up leading the strike in the place of deep formal organization and even assume some functions of the kind of municipal government for the course of a period. And you can tell the story of working class struggle for the next half century as a struggle to forge organization out of these basically national riot situations in which Railroad engineers quit to drive the trains, and then uh, they have to figure out how to prevent strike breakers from coming in. They have to def physically defend, you know, a railroad station or a shop house, where, <laughs> and that becomes, uh, you know, a losing proposition against the U.S. military. And so they have to burn down the shop house so that the company can't use it. And to pull out of these, what we're calling, you know, spontaneous, I think, you know, spontaneous upsurges of of, of militancy and how to build durable organizations out of them becomes a central problem throughout the 1880s and the 1890s and into, you know, the Wilson administration in World War I. And to get back to something Ben said at the beginning, this is a place where the, the industrial union idea is emerging at least as a horizon, right? By the end of the, the century, there will be something called the American Railway Union, which understands itself, you know, explicitly as an industrial union in the sense that it wants to represent the workers on the railroad period, not the firemen, not the brakemen, right? It's so different from how workers are organizing mostly in the period, which is mostly through secret societies. I mean, this is also there in the European kind of workers experience. You'll probably be familiar with the League of Just that, you know, was the kind of group which had first became the Communist League, which had commissioned Marx and Engels to kind of write the manifesto. These clandestine, almost blanquia cells, 
they're a core part of the 19th century, even European workers' experience. They're also pretty active throughout the United States. It's a big way that like freedmen were organizing across the South. It's a core part of the kind of like nucleus of action that takes place to kind of galvanize this strike too. And these secret societies, they're kind of funny. They're, they are patterned off the Freemasons and they are secret societies because they believe that these relatively clandestine kind of underground codes of organizing, because it's not public, can shield you from intense employer repression or just, you know, civic repression. Well, and it also kind of in that way replicates the classic image of the bourgeois Republican revolution, right? I mean, you mentioned the Freemasons, groups like the Freemasons were quite important in, you know, the overthrow of the old regime because they gave people a kind of way to organize themselves and sort of fraternize with each other outside of the rules of feudalism. And so that's sort of being replicated and radicalized and extended downward in the social spectrum. Immediately out of 1877, you see, although there have been efforts to form big national labor unions already going back to the Civil War, right across the 1860s and early 1870s, coming out of 1877 and the activity on the rail lines in particular is the formation of what is probably the most credible real candidate for the first national labor movement beyond, you know, like that has, that has something to it beyond just the name, right? Which is uh, the noble and holy order of the Knights of Labor, right? And in keeping with your, your point about uh, fraternal kind of society organization, they eventually just become the Knights of Labor, but they exactly have this kind of origin to them. Well, that seems like a good of a place as any to, to kind of stop for, for this episode and the kind of birth of a possibly new organizational form for the working class. Let me tell you of a sailor, Harry Bridges is his name, an honest union leader who the bosses tried to frame. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Fragile Juggernaut, a podcast on the history and meaning of the CIO. We will be releasing new episodes every other week through the duration of our series. Our next episode will take on the history of the American working class from 1877 up until the start of the First World War. Fragile Juggernaut is hosted by our organizing committee. Alex Press, Andrew Elrod, Ben Maybe, Emma Teitelman, Gabriel Winant, and Tim Barker. We are produced by Alex Lewis and Jackson Roach at Row Home Productions, and we're brought to you by Haymarket Books. We are proud to be the first Haymarket Books Originals production. Make sure to follow and share the Haymarket Originals podcast feed so that you and your comrades are the first to know about other series-length nonfiction audio products that Haymarket rolls out. To learn more about Haymarket Originals, visit haymarketbooks.org, where you'll find thousands of indispensable radical books and other political education resources. You can also join the Haymarket Book Club, one of the best ways to support Haymarket and help fund projects like this. You can also find a link to our Patreon for Fragile Juggernaut in the show notes below. Subscribers to the podcast get access to our newsletter, which features reading lists, further analysis, and interviews with historians and labor radicals, both past and present. Every little bit you can contribute will help us be able to put this thing together. Solidarity forever. Oh, the FBI is worried. The bosses, they are scared. They can't depart six million men they know. And we're not going to let them send Harry over the sea. We'll fight for Harry Bridges.